Welcome to the 392nd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome Kristen Urquiza, the founder of Marked by COVID, back to COVID Calls. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. This is a special COVID Calls at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. As of today, December 22nd, 2021, there are 5,371,759 deaths from COVID-19 globally. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. I've been reading an obituary or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, Elena Thatch's family speaks about COVID-19 death of 17-year-old. How is this possible? It was written by Sarah Gantz and appeared December 19, 2021 in the Philadelphia Inquirer. Elena Thatch had so much left to do. A perpetually cheerful and optimistic person, 17-year-old Elena wanted to be a life coach so she could help other people be their best selves. She seemed to always have a cause, most recently safety at her school. She had been trying to start a petition to allow students at Philadelphia's only charter high school to eat lunch outside. Don't you think you'll be cold? Her aunt, Hien Yem, recalled asking her. Yeah, but we'll be safe, Elena replied. The high school senior died Monday of COVID-19, only days after first noticing symptoms and within weeks of her January appointment to get vaccinated. Elena's sudden and unexpected death has shaken her only school community where friends and teachers remembered her in a memorial service as a force for good. Children are generally considered at lower risk for severe COVID-19, and many schools have suspended rules requiring students to quarantine after exposure if they are asymptomatic. But in an interview with the Inquirer, Yem, speaking on behalf of Elena's family, urged people to get vaccinated and get boosters to stay safe. I want people to know it's not a hoax. It is very real, said Yem36, who lives in Delaware. Get vaccinated. You just don't know how your body is going to respond to the virus. Though Elena's parents were both vaccinated, Elena, her nine-year-old sister and five-year-old brother all got sick in early December. At first, the illness seemed mild, but within days, Elena's health had worsened. She was having trouble breathing, Test was protruding, and the family's pulse oximeter showed a reading of 70% blood oxygen level, below 90%. It's considered an emergency. At 11.30 p.m. Sunday night, the family rushed Elena to St. Christopher's Hospital for Children. By 2.30 p.m. the next day, the doctors had done everything they could to help Elena. Her lungs were failing, and so was her heart. Her aunt, Hien Yim, said that my sister kept yelling. I don't understand. She was fine yesterday. She couldn't grasp it. I couldn't wrap my mind around it either, she said. How is that possible? 
There are no words to describe the loss of a child, especially so quickly and unexpectedly. Grief and guilt are a powerful storm that with time, the family will weather. My mom, myself, my sister, we're all thinking we could have done this or that, Miss Yem said. We're all blaming ourselves. We're all working around, we're all working moms and trying to coordinate things around work schedules, school schedules. Elena was scheduled to get her vaccine at the same time as her two younger siblings, an approach that many busy families may consider to reduce the number of trips to the pharmacy and days caring for children feeling under the weather from possible vaccine side effects. Ms. Yem said she wanted to speak out about the importance of vaccination because it's what Elena, who always went out of her way to help others, would have wanted. I remember her as a baby, just randomly saying hi to people. She doesn't understand what strangers are to this day and never did, Miss Yum said of her niece, who was like a daughter to her. Kantha Thatch, 35, was a high school senior when Elena was born, and the whole family circled around them to help care for the family's first grandchild. We all raised her, Miss Yum said. They're holding each other up again as they say goodbye. Following the family's Buddhist tradition, Elena's parents and Yem's household have set flowers, candles, and a morning meal near a photograph of Elena every day since her death. Buddhist Theravadins believe that the spirit of the dead lingers in a place where they felt safe and happy for several days before realizing they are no longer living and moving on to the afterlife. The offerings and the incense they burn let the spirit know their family is with them as they transition. As Yem said, she and Thatch have both felt a warmth in their homes they believe is Elena. While looking through Elena's belongings, Miss Thatch noticed a smudge on her daughter's bedroom mirror that she's taken as a sign. It was a happy face in the letters I-L-Y for I love you. Okay, let me turn to my conversation for today, and I'm going to introduce Kristen Urquiza. She doesn't need any introduction, really, for anybody at this point, but I'm going to introduce her anyway, in case you're not familiar with her work. She's the co-founder and chief activist of the organization Marked by COVID. Kristen is a graduate of Yale University and Berkeley's Goldman School of Public Policy, where she has a Master of Public Affairs. She's an environmental advocate at Mighty Earth, where she works to hold corporations like Cargill, accountable to their industrial agricultural practices that place indigenous, displace indigenous people from their lands and drive deforestation in places like the Amazon rainforest and beyond. Additionally, Kristen works closely with Liberation in a Generation, a group working to narrow the wealth gap between people of color and white families in the United States within a generation. She's also been a guest host of COVID calls earlier in the fall, so you probably saw that. Kristen, it's great to bring you back to COVID Calls. How are you? Good. It's great to be here. Um, I'm still just thinking about Elena and that opening line. She had so much left to do. That's resonant. Yeah, it's um, it's a, it's a startling story, and and I, you know. A lot of times, those stories, I almost cringe when I read them because somewhere buried in there is the paragraph where they'll say, I guess in new newsrooms, they feel like they have to say this, that most children don't have a, you know, a severe case of COVID-19. I noticed earlier in the pandemic, those paragraphs were closer to the top. They 
bury them a little bit lower now. And uh, I understand why they do that, but I don't like it. I, I want to hear about her. And I thought it was a really well-written piece. And we got to know the sense of her, of her family. Absolutely. And her community, who she was as a person. And just also starting off with that line, you think about this young woman, you know, not quite even an adult, but who's already thinking about ways to keep her community safe and, you know, who she should have become. And I just, I appreciated you sharing that with all of us because we, I'm a better person for knowing that she was lost to this because it helps um, me continue to find the resolve to prevent this from happening to other families. You spend a lot of time talking to families who are grieving. Um, your own family, I suppose, still going through uh, a phase of grief. Your father passed away from COVID in, in 2020, Mark Anthony Arquiza. And um, is that something that that people share a lot, the sense that there was a lot left to give that this because it's a different way of talking about loss. I mean, one is the suffering of a person, but the other is like the things you'll never know mm -hmm. that might have been possible. Yeah, um, it is a sentiment and discussion that's often um, spoken about in our circles and something that I have found really um, resonant as well is, is in particular the people who lost family members who were older. Um, folks in their 80s or 90s that can often um, be met with the response of, oh, they let, they led a long life. And, you know, the people who they leave behind, you know, th they still had so much left to give. My great grandfather, he, you know, was such an important role model to my, my child. It, it, these are the types of stories that I hear from family members, whether their loved one they lost was young or, you know, towards the end of their life. And I think that really underscores um, just how valuable life is to family, to communities, and how everybody on this journey together, you know, at this moment has value. And during this pandemic, you know, it has, I've, I, I feel as if I've been witnessing just so much um, underappreciation of, of the people that we have here, you know, in our planet are kind of turning a blind eye towards um, making sure people in schools are protected to folks in nursing homes are protected. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a conversation of, of that's not talked about enough externally. And I think partially why um, it, it really spoke to me in Elena's story about, you know, what, what she had left to do that she was cheated of. I, when I um, get the chance to talk, to family members who've lost someone uh, to COVID or any disaster for that matter. I never, I never hear them talk about the big numbers, the 806,000 dead in the United States, the you know, 5 million plus dead around the world. 
they talk about the, their family member and they talk about what it meant to their to their community that's that's how they're making sense of it and i so i find it sometimes quite jarring when there are other people and i think i'm one of those on the outside who sometimes mm -hmm. talks about the the big numbers and the aggregate numbers and i don't like to use them i don't even like to talk about them but it's at the same time i i always still struggle with this this problem of like bringing to bear the enormity of this mm -hmm. but also like well in a sense like what does that enormity mean what it means is so many of these stories mm -hmm. like elena's or like your father's i mean as a person who works hard to communicate what this all means <laughs> how do i mean I, I really see you in that way i mean you're a translator to a certain degree for the rest of us of what this means how, do you struggle with that that problem of kind of the many numbers, but the, the individual story. I appreciate you bringing that up because, you know, I, part of how I approach every single person in the Mark by COVID community, whether they've been around for a while or whether they've just come, you know, come, come forward is it's all about for me, you know, who, who they're mourning, who they lost. And I take note of asking you know, what their name was, you know, where they grew up, what they liked, just those questions to try to get to know that person. And um, I think that's such an important part of this process that we're all going through is, con it is taking that abstract number that's too big for us to actually wrap our head around and, and tell the stories. And that's really how we got started and something that I'm very proud um, to have done myself was, you know, kind of first and foremost, put a line in the sand and sand and say, my dad's life mattered and he should still be here. And here's who he was as a person. Here are the decisions he made because of the information that he had. And as a result, it cost him his life. And I don't think this should have happened to him nor anybody else. And part of what I guess I'm trying to get at is one of the things that I feel like I struggle with educating the broader public about and in this sort of translation is continuing to keep open space for the imperfect victims. Every single person whose life was lost from this, it's a tragedy. It is an absolute tragedy. Somebody passed away here in the US because they were unvaccinated and because they believed that the vaccine was gonna do something terrible to them. They probably believed that because of disinformation and they're a victim of disinformation. And that breaks my heart that we lost them. And so for me, what, I try to do in order to help kind of weave that thread is to bring out that texture of what that life meant to the people who loved them. And um, there are nearly a million people here in the United States now whose stories need to be told, need to be held, need to be uplifted. And that's a really enormous project, but I think that it takes, you know, each of us doing what we can to help shine the light on the individual story, that individual person whose life is no longer here.
I've I've noted, and I wonder if you have throughout the year coming to a close now. I mean, what a what a roller coaster in terms of even just epidemiologically. And I think back to the to the spring and the sort of wave of euphoria that people who were vaccinated experienced, and then they imagined a summer. And I think many people did experience in the United States uh, a summer that felt somehow like 2019 and not like 2020. And then going into, you know, resurgent Delta wave in the fall and then the Omicron wave. And, and so I bring this, this up because at various junctures throughout the pandemic, there has been this sense that, oh, we get back to normal, that intense drive to normalization. And, but that's not how the pandemic works. And I, and so I wonder, have you found people seeking you out according to that and rediscovering marked by COVID? Because it feels like every time the sort of societal drive to forget gets mobilized, the pandemic then goes into another phase and gets worse. And there's another, you know, wave of, of deaths. And then this memorialization conversation comes back again. It For you, it's every day. But I think for a lot of people who are not paying as close yeah. attention, this same, I guess what I'm asking is it's almost like you've, I wonder if you've had to re-describe the need for this like four, I guess four times now in the United States, it feels like. Yeah, no, that's that's absolutely right. The sort of ebb and flow of, of the pandemic, the chapters that we've lived through has forced us to kind of take stock and figure out, you know, as a community, one, how do we um, ensure that people know that, you know, we exist and that we are a community that, you know, is here to support one another, but then also externally, um, you know, how do we continue to make the case that, you know, our needs matter and that, you know, what we're asking for is not only in the best interest of the people who are bereaved, but also for the for the country and, and, and world as as a whole. And, and, you know, there, there have been moments where I have even questioned myself, like, is this needed? Um, because it does sometimes feel like, you know, we are t- screaming into the void. <laughs> um, but then I connect with families and connect with people that have now become friends of mine who are kind of part of this, this community. And, um, you know, it, it kind of re-energizes, um, that, that, that drive in me to ensure that our loved ones are remembered. And then also politically speaking, if we want to go there, you know, we have lost so much here in the United States. So many people are grieving. And I was just thinking about this earlier today and how, you know, I've never, and I don't know when or if, like, we've never had like a celebration of life for my dad. And that's not because he wasn't somebody worthy of celebrating. It's just that it hasn't been safe to do that. And I connected with that. And I felt that deep pit of of grief in my stomach about how I was experiencing loss around being able to be in community with his friends from high school and from elementary school who he was still friends with, even though he was 65 and hear those stories about him and recognizing that that's something that people across the country are going through. 
But back to my point on, on unity is that unity, grief is something that we can unite behind. And I think that we can see our common humanity by really reaching people at and, and, and extending that, that, that card of empathy um, to one another as we're able to collectively mourn. And so I think it's not only essential um, to, to mark this moment, to give people a chance to take stock of what we've lost, but I also think it's an essential building block in repairing the country after enduring this really tumultuous events events that we've been going through over the course of the last several years. Um, one of the things marked by COVID has been doing is advocating for a National Day of Remembrance. Can you update me on on that effort? And yeah. it looks different as we were, as you we were just saying. I mean, it it looks maybe even different politically now than it did when you first made that that ask. So we have um, made a lot of strides on our our National Day of Remembrance. Um, we have a bill in both the House and the Senate uh, with a growing list of co-sponsors. And uh, we are working to get it passed before this upcoming March because we'd like to be able to observe um, the what we are calling the second observance of, of our COVID Memorial Day alongside of the federal government and Congress and everyone else. So um, going into the new year, uh, we're doing a whole series of, of lobby meetings uh, with our representatives and reaching out to folks who have uh, yet to commit um, to ask that they put their you know, name on the line for co-sponsorship and uh, work to get it you know, introduced and in, into committee and, and passed. And some of our legislative champions, um, you know, we, we, we've been working with them behind the scenes and, and it's, you know, the word we're getting from them is it's not a question of, of if, but when. And so um, we're going to bring the urgency for the win because I think that we really need this, especially given the moment that we're in. And we know that over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to see a surge in cases. We already are. Hospitals in the U.S. are at capacity. I was just reading something um, from a doctor friend that over 60 counties are at 100% capacity or more in the United States. That's going to impact not just people with COVID, but other folks' ability to be able to receive care. So I'm quite worried about this upcoming month. And I think we need to start this new year, not only with a commitment, you know, as the WHO has said, to, to end the pandemic, but a commitment to really being there for one another um, who've survived this pandemic and have lost so much. Well, I'm really glad to get that update about the National Day of Remembrance. And, and thank you for, for sticking with that, because we need that. And I really, I mean, you started celebrating it, I mean, marking it very early on in 2020. I mean, you had, there was a week of remembrance, if, I, if I'm if i remembering how you mm -hmm. how you pursued it, and you've stuck with it ever since. And we, I wish we'd had a National Day of Remembrance in 2020, and I wish we'd had it this fall. And I think about how important those moments would have been, um, as you said, just to give people something to unite behind. That's one of the problems with this pandemic, to me, is there's now there's so many different things to try to advocate for. I mean, there's 
long COVID. There's support for bereaved families. There's support for children who's lost a, lost a parent, for healthcare workers. It's diffuse. Mm-hmm. And so I think we do need some common touch points and a, and a day of remembrance is a, is a very clearly needed sort of something people can lead up to, do something together in solidarity that day, and then mark and remember afterwards. I appreciate that because that's exactly how, you know, we see it and I've seen it as well. Like this is an opportunity for us to be together in our grief to mark this tragedy. And then my hope is for, you know, as we proceed through time, that this can be an opportunity for us to not turn our backs on public health, public health crises, slow disasters, like have it be a moment in our calendar to not only remember and honor those that we lost here and there, but to start creating the curriculum that's appropriate for children of all different ages to talk about this pandemic, because there will be intergenerational trauma as a result of, of what has is happening right now. And we haven't done a really great job of being able to address that um, across the board for, for, you know, every other tragedy that's happened. And I'm really committed to making sure that uh, future generations get the unvarnished truth and, and, and that we pass on our unvarnished wisdom to them so that they have a better chance at, you know, what, what happens to come up down the road for them. I still struggle with the denialists. And um, you mentioned, you know, people who are victims of misinformation. And I think that's a a really appropriate way to to put that i try to sort of sometimes i say okay i know most people those are the ones that make headlines or they they have their own social media platforms and so they're out there it's an industry and they're they're getting paid to spread covid denial and that's another reason i think that a national day of remembrance and and similar efforts are needed to just kind of once again, normalize, I can't believe I'm going to say this, but normalize that it's okay to say sorry for your loss mm-hmm. and not be worried that somebody's going to attack you because mm-hmm. they're wrapped up in some conspiracy mind. I still don't want to believe that that's most of America or even a substantial part of people who call themselves Republicans. I, I don't really know if we have a good handle on how many people believe that, but I guess my my point is I think we need it for that too, as mm-hmm. a way to break this, this, you know, sociopathic um, denialism that's, that's out there. The revisionist history, you know, has been paramount since day one. And my dad passed in, in June of 2020 and, you know, the, the days and weeks following his death, at this point are just sort of a, a whirlwind. Um, and I, I didn't have a, a normal grief trajectory even within the, the COVID community because I decided to speak out and start marked by COVID with my partner. But the one thing I do remember so crystal clear in my mind, thinking back even now um, to like July and August was, was, was reading headlines, reading newspapers and thinking, they're already trying to rewrite history. And I'm not going to let that happen. And I kept thinking back to um, 
you know, being taught as a child about like Christopher Columbus Day and having it be this like wonderful, um, you know, wonderful sort of treatment of the discovery of America with completely erasing the, you know, genocide of Native Americans and the ongoing struggle for indigenous rights. And I was like, oh my gosh, if we don't do something like a, a, a day of mourning that turns into something larger, am I going to be seeing when I'm, you know, 70, 80, 80 years old, you know, people talking about this or not talking about this? Like we didn't talk about the 1918 pandemic. Right. No, I think that's a, that's a great point. And as, you know, historians, it's something interesting happening. You may have noted it in, in the, in the academic world and historians, but not only historians who are, are trained, we're trained to sort of current events happen. We read the daily newspaper, but we're supposed to be immersed in things that are in the, in the past. But, uh, there's a lot of action and activism among historians too, because of COVID, because of Black Lives Matter, because of the insanity of the Trump presidency and his attempts to put his own actions in the memory hole. Um, I think this is a moment where, it, just as you said, I think people inside and outside the historical profession and museum work as well and archives who are like, we can't, can't sit around and let people literally rewrite this pandemic in the middle of it. And the urge to do that has been um, really strong, I think, and, and pretty scary to a lot of people. Right. Upsetting the status quo is scary. <laughs> and, you know, I, 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 I'm not, you know, an academic in history. I'm, I'm very appreciate history. And, and I got that appreciation from my dad. Um, and, but there is something, you know, from, from my perspective as a person who is alive, who is, who we together as a society are creating history with this every passing moment and are in the context of an unprecedented event. It feels like there is a, a opportunity to not necessarily completely, you know, rewrite how history is studied and captured, but what is, what does it mean to, what does living history actually mean? And I think it's, really important in particular in these times of crisis where um part of you know from what i have been able to to learn from my lived experiences is you know what ends up like history what ends up being called real like can change at any given moment <laughs> and part of part of I don't know, winning or part of, you know, being able to come out on top or however you want to is to be able to control the narrative. And so much of the work that we've been doing at Mark by COVID has been helping to or trying to help to to really create space for a narrative that's about the impact of this virus on people's lives, what we've lost, um, you know, what we stand to lose if we don't act. And um that sort of shifting of narrative work does then end up helping to create space for different choices and, and different activism and, and different avenues of people to come up. So it, it's, um, totally, you know, out of my realm of academic knowledge, but I am an, I will be an activist for, <laughs> for the historians out there who are expanding the way history is written. <laughs> well, I, and that's, 
that's important to note and and also that I think people I just want to make sure people know they can find um, your work at markedbycovid.com and they should go there and see what you what you have been doing um, and and how they can get involved and it kind of loops what we were just talking about back to our previous conversation about the National Remembrance Day um, is that you have a lot of different initiatives ongoing and and it's sort of also you're a you're a platform builder to other activist communities so that people are not kind of working in isolation it's what we were talking about a little bit earlier I mean the weight of this is enormous and the feeling that you're alone and can get lonely in the middle of this I think is is really um, it's dangerous it, it's 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 a it's a way that activists I think get burned out is that eventually they feel like they're just sort of like am I the only person who cares about this so go to marked by COVID I'm really encouraging everyone particularly now with the Omicron variant here and find out how you can pitch in. And I, I want to ask you that, Kristen, um, if people want to support the effort for the Remembrance Day, how can they help? It's a great question. Um, we're asking everyone to, um, you know, if you're able to call or email your representative expressing your support for um, COVID Remembrance Day. Um, on the House uh, side, it's HR 174. The Senate side, it's Senate um, 334. So those are the two bill norm numbers. But you could also just as simply call and say, listen, I think it's really important that um, we um, mark this pandemic. And I'm in full support of, of, a, of a Memorial Day for um, COVID victims and survivors. And uh, that makes a huge difference. Um, we're working to get, you know, folks from every single district to reach out whether or not um, you've been, you know, severely impacted by COVID. And then um, our activists are following up in the new year with all of these offices to um, host individual conversations with uh, groups of folks who are in support. So if you want to take a sort of the next step, it would be reaching back out to us and we could put you um, in a, a small group meeting with an elected official to support um, the COVID Memorial Day work. Let me just remind everybody that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Kristen Urquiza today. And um, Kristen, I saw your name in the headlines again earlier um, this fall, not that long ago, when Mark Meadows, former chief of staff to Donald Trump's book, came out. <sighs> yes. And we found out that Trump, I, 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 sometimes this news breaks, and I'm like, I already thought that was true. Like I sort of like intuitively, <laughs> so of course it, was, it was terrible, right? But of course, I mean, the, the setup was that Trump had told people he'd been tested on the day of the debate of one of the debates, October debate, and that he not only, yeah, he'd been tested, but he had COVID and went into that space and you were there in the front row. Oh my gosh. So this was the Cincinnati debate. Um, 
I had been invited a couple of days earlier by the Biden campaign team to be a guest of President or then Vice President Biden. And um, it was a really big decision for me to say yes to because my dad had just passed from COVID, you know, a couple of months before I hadn't, you know, been anywhere um, since we first um, entered into the pandemic in March. And the idea of riding on an airplane and knowing that, you know, the sort of circumstances around there would be a lot of people, it was just a lot to kind of take on. But I was reassured that every single person in the debate hall would be masked and would also have um, tested negative that day and would only be allowed in with a negative test in, a, in addition to obviously the security checks and sort of all of that standard thing. And so, um, you know, I, I ended up saying yes. Um, and to um, then learn that, um, you know, to, to have this information come forward that not only was Trump positive after the debate, he was positive before the debate. It, um, it, it caused the hair on the back of my neck to stand up straight with rage and fury at the total disregard, once again, of, for human life that this man and his entire institution um, around him is just only concerned with with himself and his own interests. And also just thinking about, oh, great. Now here's Mark Meadows, this like former chief of staff guy who's like written some book and is going to make a ton of money off of this where people like have died. There, there has got to be somebody who's got sick from that entire family being in that debate room. Um, There has got to be like it. And, and before and after that, I mean, I have talked to people who had family members that went to Trump rallies in, you know, Michigan and Minnesota who ended up dying as a result of that. It, it, so, yes, it's it, it's one of those things that it's like it shouldn't be a surprise. And I guess this means that, like, I have a soul but every single detail that comes out to the like ridiculousness of the depths that that administration went to just continues to cause me to convulse and also say, this is why we need an investigation to fully understand the decisions when they were made, have it be an independent, nonpartisan and be able to have the track record of what we knew and when we made decisions and why so that families like mine have the answers that we've been asking for for so, you know, for almost two years now. Well, thank you for relating your experience <laughs> to this. And, you know, one part of that really, really strikes me, too. Why should Mark Meadows be the guy who gets rich off of telling that that story? Mm-hmm of Trump knowingly going into that room. And Mark Meadows knew about it too. He knew about it. He knew about his test. And so not only was he, did he put the vice president at risk and as well as everybody in that room, myself included, 
He didn't say anything about it. He did nothing about it until it became financially profitable for him to say something about it. And that's what makes me sick. Because there are, as we have talked about, there are families who have lost a breadwinner who are having to move from their houses, who are struggling to make ends meet, who are living not just paycheck to paycheck, but on savings and everything else. Oops, I have an incoming call that that they um, that they just don't have available. And yet here we are with Mark Meadows being able to just be like, oh yeah, and this happened, like it was no big deal. So you use the term COVID justice and you've talked about the need for a, cut, a commission um, and a, you know, a, a real investigation uh, to go through and, and create this timeline and to understand how government decisions were made. And part of that is, as I see it, is, is um, forensic. Part of getting justice, part of understanding this disaster is li it literally to, to just make sense of what happened. But part of it, too, is, to my mind, I haven't given up on the idea that there's people here who are to blame. I don't know how what justice will look like, but I, I think that's, to me, an important part, ultimately, societally, of getting through grieving and getting back to a place where we can have some trust in each other and in our institutions. Uh, to me, if this whole thing, just let's go back to that that weird moment with Trump we were just talking about. If that whole thing just blows over and passes and it's okay for a president to act that way, so in the abstract, he acted like that every day, making decisions that, that killed people because of his inaction. But there's a moment where because of his action, he put people at harm. I just think we need to, we need to push that. Absolutely. There has to be accountability. Um, I don't know exactly what it looks like. I don't know exactly what the process is. But what I do know is the first step is a commission to be able to get the record straight and then be able to take that and pursue justice in a variety of different ways. And not only for, you know, then President Trump and associates and the ecosystem that enabled those individuals, which is not, not including, you know, Fox News and other sort of nefarious uh, media players, but it's also about making sure that there is no precedent setting this is not, this is supposed to be a democracy. democracy. We, are we are supposed to be able to have um, a representative democracy. We have a Bill of Rights. We have the Constitution. We have these foundational documents that are not only important for us here in the U.S., but the American democratic experiment is really what we've been pushing globally in order to ensure these ideas of justice and equity and freedom and liberty and the pursuit of happiness, these ideals of just what it is to be able to be alive and to live a life that is free, we cannot have anybody be above that. And for somebody like the former president of the United States to not only have inaction, but action that put people's lives in danger, put his opponent's life in danger, to not have consequences come from that, we will see more of it, unfortunately. And that is not, not only good for the United States, but it's it's terrible for 
example for you know people all around the world and so i i find it not only sort of a justice for myself and my family and everybody else who's been put in harm's way but i find it as part of my duty as a person in this country to try and pass on something that i did my best to make better than how it was given to me well you have a particular kind of moral authority in this situation and so i i just think that's why people need to rally around marked by covid and rally around victims family members but and you and i've talked about this before it does put a lot of pressure on family who have everybody has their own grieving process and their own timeline and as you said you had an unconventional grieving process because you kind of you did it very publicly in part and then you also had to suspend part of it i think just because you've been so busy um but i guess my question to you is like what is what is your advice to people who who have lost loved ones from covid or in you know that sort of circle of bereavement you know may not have been a parent or a spouse it might have been an aunt or an uncle or a sibling but um but they want accountability too mm -hmm. what should they do because their voice is more powerful than my voice it should be it is uh there's only so much that people who are in the sort of peripheral realm of supporters like myself can do it's ultimately you and those who've had that lived experience who have the microphone and who should have it mm -hmm. well my advice um is fairly simple in that if you feel that this should not have happened that this was preventable in some way if you sense in yourself this sort of fire of injustice even if you've never felt this way before even if you've only been sympathetic to other injustices you'll know it and you'll see it in the people that you love who are still with you and that for me was was so crucial is was actually sharing with people in my direct family i don't this shouldn't have happened and seeing my uncles my the brothers of my father my aunts the sisters of my father folks looking back at me you know over the video calls and their 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 voices on the phone saying how did this shouldn't have happened to him he he had more time that's exactly what they said he had more time we were robbed he was robbed if you find that within yourself and then the people around you and you have the the drive to make sure that they're that that is that is heard and that is recognized then reach out to others who have been in this terrible seat before because the community of folks like with marked by covid we have folks who have been out there sharing their story from day one, and we have folks who are part of our community who are not ready to share their story publicly, but find so much community and support from people who've been in the same situation. And so my advice is starting with that um, respect of 
recognizing if that injustice, that feeling of injustice is inside of you, honoring that, and then going back to that theme of loneliness, really, (laughs) it is very lonely to be grieving somebody during this time. But the single most effective thing that I have found, as well as others, is connecting with people who have lost loved ones. Almost up on my time today in my discussion with Kristen Urquiza, the co-founder of Marked by COVID. And Kristen, I'm sure you've uh, had to adapt your holiday traditions. I'm not sure what your traditions were when your father was still alive, but Christmas now, this will be the second one that you've gone through, Christmas and New Year's, um, without him. How have you adapted this time of year? Um, and, and I ask that in part, I ask that with great respect because just talking about family traditions is, is a powerful way of sharing, but, um, also something you just said, which is you have a lot more people in your life now than you did before. It's not the way you would have wanted them probably to come into your life, but you're part of a big community. So, and everybody wants to be part of the holidays. I'm sure you get a lot of emails and people reaching out and saying Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. I mean, it must be, I don't know how to, how to even ask the question, except just to wonder how is your Christmas different now than it was in 2019? I feel um, like the holidays now are, are completely different and still shifting. And, you know, we had within my nuclear family, some, you know, very, our very specific traditions of, of how we would mark, um, the Christmas and new years. And, you know, I tried every single year to be home in particular because, uh, Christmas is so important to my family. And, um, you know, I was home last year cause I moved back to Arizona for a while to help my mom. But this year I was planning on going home for a few days and, and to be with her, but because of the new variant and my mom, being over 65, though vaccinate, fully vaccinated and boosted, she is in a more vulnerable um, class and I don't want anything to happen to her. So we have switched our plans and are not going to be meeting up right now. But to that point of like, how do, how are we trying to make lemonade <laughs> out of this pile of lemons? Um, I have been uh, connecting a lot with people individually that I um, have met over the course of the last year. And last year on New Year's Eve, um, I (laughs) was by myself and I spent the entire day on Zoom calls, just one Zoom call where people from the community jumped in. And I realized at the end of the day that like I had spent the entire day with people that I didn't know six months prior. Wow. And I anticipate doing something similar this New Year's. I just want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID calls and you can usually catch COVID calls at 6 p.m. Eastern time. This is a special COVID calls that we had at 4.30 p.m. Eastern time. And um, I want to thank you, Kristen, for coming on and, and talking. It's always uh, great to speak with you and I always learn. And I always kind of, this is very selfish, but I kind of get a recharge too. Oh, I love when I that. talk to you because I'm like, if Kristen's doing this, like, I think I can, I think I'll be fine, you know? And 
And I also wanted to thank you because you hosted um, several episodes of COVID calls earlier in the year. And I'm going to put it back up those links so people can find them. Uh, among your many talents, you're good. You're a great host. And these were good, really good conversations. So thanks again for doing that. Um, I don't really know how you made time to do it, but I'm glad you did. It was really nice. I appreciate it. I had a wonderful time. And as we were talking about backstage, maybe there will be more podcasting in uh, my future. We'll see. You you owe it to us now. You don't owe us anything. <laughs> You've done plenty. But if you want to do it, we would love to hear those conversations. But uh, let's see what happens in the in the new year. And just to remind everybody, you should go to markedbycovid.com. And you should also find a way, as we were suggesting, call your senator's office, call your house to represent your representative. It's easy to make those calls. I promise you, they're not going to put you right on the line with the senator. You're going to talk to a well-meaning staffer who wants to hear from you, or you can send an email and let them know that you're interested in a Memorial Day for COVID victims. And please do that. If you can do it this week, it would be a great thing to help that effort. Kristen, uh, be well through the holidays. It's good to see you. You too. Thanks so much for having me back. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID Calls.